Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Darwin Millard. He is Chief Science Officer at Final Bell. He's also known as the Spock of Cannabis. Uh, happy to have him on and talk a little bit about what he's doing in, in cannabis, what he's doing with standards, what he's doing in the hemp world. Darwin is very active in the community and in the industry uh, and helping set regulations, help set standards and you know how we go about uh, making this business, making this industry consistent, regular, really kind of bringing it into a more kind of modern, developed uh, industry like a lot of other ones. Obviously, cannabis is growing quite a bit over the last 10 years. And we're certainly moving into some of the more advanced aspects of cannabis and thinking about all the things from, you know, packaging to standards to processing. And Darwin's very involved in all that. I'm excited to have him on. With that, Darwin, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Bruce, for having me here on Thinking Outside the Bud. I really appreciate it. And I look really forward to our conversation today. Yeah, well, it's, it's great to have you on. It, I know we, we met a while ago and I've been meeting to do this and I'm, I'm glad we finally got it in the schedule and, and uh, found some time. Definitely. Let's, uh, before we kind of dive into what's going on with standards and what you're doing at the various committees and labels and 
and hemp and uh, the work you're doing with Final Bell. Let's talk about the backstory. Like, how how did you get into cannabis? What was the kind of impetus? Give us the journey that you've been on. <laughs> For sure. I guess I'm one of the lucky few or rare few, uh, kind of however you want to phrase it. But um, I didn't really have any other career other than cannabis. Uh, you know, I'm a mechanical engineer by training. And when I graduated in 2008, it was either uh, design and build slurry pumps for the fracking industry <laughs> or dive headfirst into Colorado's fledgling medical <laughs> cannabis industry at the time. So yeah. that was kind of a no-brainer. And, and so, you know, 15 years later or so now, I wouldn't change anything for the world. And I've really just been passionate about bringing a higher level of, I guess, just professionalism to the marketplace. So for me, you know, it's really just been a passion project. I, I really do live and breathe this plant. Yeah. And I'm hoping to, I guess, through my efforts, make it easier for others to make this really a, a career path without it being, you know, risky, I guess. Yeah. What are the risks? I mean, when you, when you, kind of look at getting involved in the cannabis industry, you know, other folks that have been interested in, you know, transitioning to cannabis, what are the things they need to think about? Or what are the things that have come up for you as you see people transition into cannabis? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, needing to have uh, keep your nose clean, so to speak, right? Because yeah. you got to have a clean background check, you got to pass different levels of security clearances, regard depending on what marketplace you're in. You know, I'm in Canada now. So there's a whole <laughs> different level of uh, scrutiny that goes into that. And, you know, really, you just have to be open and honest with the regulators and be willing to work with regulators. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of the thing here, right? Is that you think it's going to be all sorts of fun and games, which it is, uh, but there is a lot of paperwork and compliance, right? That you need to yeah. be aware of. Yeah. And what, um, give us a sense of how, how your kind of work in cannabis has evolved. I mean, wh where did you start? What, what's been the development? I mean, obviously the industry has developed over time. How have you kind of grown and morphed as the industry has changed? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, humble beginnings, just like everyone else really, you know, kind of graduating from garage tech enthusiast to uh, licensed operator. Really got my uh, major start back with uh, Dixie Elixirs and Edibles before they kind of became all big. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, was a part of the group that actually created the very first uh, CBD dietary supplement ever, uh, kind mm -hmm. of utilizing the rules at the time, uh, creating it from uh, hemp, uh, hemp seed paste derivative extracts, um, and really had that very first product out on the marketplace when that first weed specials came out. So, you know, when people are like, oh, I'm going to Google, you know, CBD and cannabis and hemp, and where can I get it? Dixie Botanicals was the very first product you know, at the same time that was from him, quote unquote, right? Yeah. And available. So it was kind of advantageous or uh, serendipitously timed. And from there, you know, kind of graduated into being consultant or hired gun for the marketplace in really helping clients uh, refine their processes, really understand what their cost of goods are, because it still kind of bewilders me that people don't know really what it is, uh, you know, how expensive it is to make some of these products. Yeah, uh, they really are a labor of love in some cases <laughs> with really, really, really tiny margins, yeah. um, especially when you add excise taxes and all of that fun stuff. Oh, yeah. So really helping clients narrow in on that, figure out how to design these processing facilities to be more efficient and really looking towards uh, future proofing, right, through things like 
understanding that GMP or quality management systems are actually important. Uh, and so is uh, employee safety, you know, occupational safety, health and safety. And if you design that in your facility now, you know, ahead of time, you don't need to tear your building down and build a new one, potentially, which, you know, that obviously is very expensive and <laughs> yeah, could, re- could really derail, a, you know, a long-term business plan if you didn't think that through. Yeah. Do you, and do you find, I mean, I, that's happening a lot with a lot of these facilities. I mean, as you kind of work with people in the cannabis space, is this kind of the infrastructure that has been built is just not either up up to standard in terms of being able to run uh, the processes and the facilities you want, or from a um, kind of regulatory or, you know, standards point of view is just not up to snuff and you that they need to really kind of either do a re- major reno, retrofit or just a rebuild completely? <laughs> Short answer is, uh, yeah, I mean, as soon as we go federal, you know, when we go legal here, that which is everybody's hope that we can go real, right? Well, you know, on on the hemp side of the coin, so to speak, right? Well, it's already real for them, which means, you know, you got to comply with the FDA, you got to comply with the USDA, the FTC, and so many other three-letter acronyms or (laughs) multi-letter acronyms, right? And yeah, to be honest, there are a lot of facilities that are built that will probably need to be mothballed. Uh, because yeah. it will just be too expensive to do that retrofit rather than just do a greenfield project. Yeah. What, what, what actually happens? I mean, is this like, what are the systems that end up not working? Is this fire suppression? Is it uh, drainage? I mean, what, what are the things that come into play? Honestly, it's little things that you just don't think about when you're designing your facility um, uh, appropriately, like gowning procedures. How do you actually transition from the front of the house to the back of the house? Where does shipping and receiving occur? And how do you actually handle that in a way that keeps the back of your house clean versus the front of your house dirty, right? Or a commingle. And how do you isolate commingled spaces and things like that? And if you just didn't design your facility in the first place to that, there's no way to go back or to go forward, I guess, right? Uh, When you have... um, just facility constraints are, are common, especially when you when people in the industry right are trying to find whatever property is available and you just move into an envelope or a shell, a building, right? And you're like, I can retrofit this and turn it into something. I'll turn it into a grow or a processing facility. Yeah. And without the right consultants, contractors, uh, the architectural and engineering teams that know like product flow, warehousing, how to actually do logistics and really food manufacture, because that's really what a lot of this is, or ingredient manufacturing, you might not have a facility that lasts longer than, you know, the initial rush. Yeah. And for some, that would, that's okay, because that's what their business plan is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what, what part uh, or where have you focused the majority of your efforts? Is it on the sort of the cultivation side, processing side, formulation, you know, creating final product? Where, where, where have you played mostly? Great question. Yeah, no, I'm a, uh, I would say I am a, uh, as I said before, a mechanical engineer by training, yeah. but I specialize in mechanical and solvent-based extraction methodologies yep. for isolating terpophenolic secondary metabolites from botanicals, which is yeah. just a fancy way of saying that I know how to make oil well. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been helping clients, like I said, refine their techniques for manufacturing extracts, but also then how to use that. You know, now you've, you've produced all of this awesome, you know, refined extract or amazing isolate or terpene fraction or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. what do you do with it? So really connecting those dots between, okay, facility to design and in product 
and how you actually do that in between is uh, really what I've been focusing on over the past, I, I mean, five or more years. Yeah. And where, where are we? I mean, I, I know, you know, in the beginning, it was a lot of kind of processes that were run at a fairly, you know, small scale, almost a little crafty, um, you know, that kind of drove a lot of the industry. But as things have grown, you know, scaling these processes, not, not all of the extraction methods and, and processes, you know, scale easily or, or will scale effectively or, or economically. I mean, give, give us a sense of what has evolved in the industry in terms of extraction methods and where are we today in terms of the, the major methods that we're using, um, you know, at kind of more of a scale from a scale point of view. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, with these four types of extractions, right, they're really the ones that are on the forefront. I think what's happened, you'll see on the CBD side, is that maybe people went a little too big, uh, <laughs> too quickly, like before the market was really matured. Whereas on the THC side, you know, the markets have, ha- have been a little more constrained by regulations. And so people have been a little more controlled or gun shy in regards to kind of getting really big equipment and going too big for their processing. And what we've seen really on the small batch because of that is more and more automation and accurate and precision driven kind of dispensing or uh, reaction based processes or little mini pieces of equipment. And you've seen now little uh, manufacturers really take advantage of these niche opportunities to produce, really just take the human out of the equation of this particular process, right? Uh, Something that just as simple as keeping a pot of extract warm and dispensing it into something, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That has really really found uh, a place in the marketplace um, and allowed both manufacturers of equipment and products to take advantage of, again, um, really the smaller constraints of the marketplace on THC and refining their processes related to, again, automation where it makes sense. Yeah. Whereas on the CBT side, you've seen people put in really all the biggest systems that are out there, right? The largest hydrocarbons, the largest uh, ethanol, the largest CO2s, some with the newest inline fractionation capabilities, right? Inline de-waxing, uh, inline chromatography, uh, yeah. and and the and 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 um, <laughs> making facilities, you know, in the tens of millions of dollars. All the while, the commodity value of the products they're making plummets. So there's a kind of a, a give and take that needs to be kind of played there. And I think we're going to see some pullback some of these uh, technologies that we've seen implemented, even though we've some amazing strides forward in technologies, as I said, with like inline de-waxing with CO2, inline chromatography now with uh, the LPG systems, Mm -hmm. uh, and the uh, cryo-centrifugal ethanol extraction. We're going to take a quick break to hear some words from our sponsors. And now back to our program. So Derwin, I'm curious to ask a little bit about what's going on in the industry. I know that you've been fairly involved in the regulatory side or at least help setting standards. Give us a little sense of how you've gotten involved in that area, why you've gotten involved in that area. Give us some details. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, kind of as I mentioned before, right, I, I truly do live and breathe this this plant. And so to help make sure I'm not killing myself <laughs> that others aren't, <laughs> right, I really, really see the value in taking... Uh, charge in that yep. and you know ASTM International really provides an uh, an amazing opportunity for uh, consumers such as myself as well as producers uh, in general interest and users of standards like laboratories or product manufacturers etc uh, yep. to have a say 
in the development of standards, which will you know, uh, can uh, have the potential of effectively setting you know the the regulatory uh, trends for the marketplace for decades to come. Yeah. Um, and with that much you know capability of influence on the marketplace, I feel it's incredibly important to spend what time I have and I guess passion and energy I have for this plant and the products and the people that consume it in, in a place that will promote uh, the commoditization of these products in a sustainable and equitable manner. Yeah. And what are the factors there? I mean, what have you seen as being kind of issues in the, in the industry that uh, hopefully some of this work will, will help address? <laughs> uh there are a few. I think, you know, first and foremost, everybody's aware of the testing issues. And, you know, so that is being addressed. Trust me, there are on many fronts, many standards development organizations are going after testing, trying to assist the labs uh, in testing better, sample prep, uh, as well as um method validation, uh, testing methods, all of those things, providing certified reference materials, et cetera, which are critical you know, to actually testing all of these things. So it's, uh, it, it, we're also creating, like I said, um, we know that there's issues there, but also labeling, right? So not only do we not trust the data, now the information that's on the product is potentially not uniform across product forms, right? It's going to have different information in different places or even just present the, the information in a different way. So there's no standardization in how, uh, you know, from one marketplace to another, how you're actually seeing the information as a consumer. So that's not good to have boutique marketplaces because as a regulator, it's a nightmare for inspection. You know, how do you detect yeah, fraud yeah. if you have, you know, 50 boutique marketplaces? And especially yeah. when you extend that to a global marketplace, it becomes that much more difficult. Um, but then also, how do you just, how do you store this material? What's the best way to maintain quality of your flower? You've got an amazing mm -hmm. harvest and you want to make sure that it stores well uh, so that you can package it. How do you package that so that you maintain its quality? And then now that you've got this awesome packaged product, it's good. You want to make sure you transport it to the dispensary or the buyer in a way that it doesn't break down. So there's these are kind of the standards we're looking at, right? So really the, the commerce side of industry, helping to establish those buyer and seller agreements, right, that can be used in contracts and protect both, as I said, you know, the, the buyer of the commodity and the seller of the good. Um, you know, so really test method, coming back to kind of those test methods, right? You've got so many variations of products, whether it's uh, high quality flour or low quality. Well, what does that mean? Quality of what, right? Is that <laughs> based on whose eyes? Exactly. Yeah. Is that an aesthetic quality or an organoleptic quality, or is that just based on chemical data? Right. Yeah. And so there's a lot of ways to define quality metrics. And based on the mm, consumer who's purchasing it, whether that's a B2B or B2C. And so there are a lot of there are standards on every single aspect of this within the market chain from how to grow it, how personnel credentialing, uh, quality management systems, laboratories, we already said processing and handling terminology. And what we yeah. how we talk about this in the same way, so we're all kind of communicating it. These are again, these are the areas we're focusing on right now, at least within ASTM International's uh, D37 on cannabis. 
Yeah. And how, how does this work? I mean, it's an international standards organization. You work with them to sort of set the frameworks and, and the standards and kind of define the terms and all this. But then, you know, we're in this kind of state by state world right now, and every state has its own kind of regulatory framework. I mean, are, are states generally adopting these things? It's, is it still kind of patchwork right now? I mean, where, where are we in terms of an industry on, on the practical standards or, or what producers and you know cultivators processors producers need need to actually follow when they're operating that's a great question so I mean all of ASTM international standards are uh, market driven and consensus oriented so the volunteer members who'd help develop these things create them based on where they see the need to develop the standards and then adoption of them is equally voluntary so these are voluntary consensus standards that when essentially, the, and built on the reputation of the standards, de standards development organization, kind of promote their value. And it just so happens, right, that ASTM International is one of the oldest standards development organizations in the world. It's over 120 years old and actually has quite intimate relationships within the United States. Several federal regulatory agencies have a default to adopt or kind of like a first look review at ASTM standards when they're writing new laws or legislations, regulations in different areas on how you enforce certain things, right, or how you would do inspections. So that's really where the uh, impact from developing these standards within the D37 comes to play because once we, over this year and into the next following years, since we've published actually 28 standards over the four years of existence and have like 75 or more plus in development, wow. is a substantial significance and use campaign to help get licensed operators and producers as well as regulators aware of these standards and how impactful they'll be. Because the more awareness you have, then you'll start to see them getting adopted, not only by the industry who adopt them first, right, as voluntary, because they see the value they uh, and really the ability to be ahead of the bar before the bar is set. Because if you're already if you're in the process of developing the standard that sets the bar because you're operating at that standard, then don't think of it as lifting up your skirt and showing everybody what's going on. Yeah. Instead, it's you're now at a bar where no other competitor can be there for potentially you know, months to years, yeah. which buys you time within mm -hmm. a marketplace where you could potentially be the only, the only seller of a good, which... I think those benefits, that business case, well outweighs the potential of, you know, working and helping a competitor, sort of speak, right? And on the regulator side, when you see the benefits of, oh, okay, here's a labeling standard that's going to define uh, and is compliant with uh, uh, the National Council for Weights and Measurements, as well as the National Institute for Standards and Technologies Handbook 130 uh, Packaging and Labeling Regulations, which is in effect, uh, um, it's codified in 46 of the 50 states, right? So yep. almost overnight, now you have a labeling specification which can eliminate 46 boutique marketplaces. <laughs> Huge, right? And for regulators yeah. on that, that makes a big difference, right? So once they're aware of something like that, then it can be truly become a powerful tool. But that's just an example of some of yeah. you know, the standards we're creating. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about that one a little bit, just because it's, it's a space that I've been in for a bit, and, and I find it fascinating is the labeling side. I mean, if you know, we've got various factors, right? There's the, you know, obviously the, you know, how well does it hold the product and keep the product? There's, uh, you know, safety and child resistant aspects. There's, you know, being able to actually 
um, pack and sort and store these things effectively? I mean, how, what do you actually, what are you focused on in the labeling standards? What, what aspects or what are you trying to cover with labeling standards and what do you not try to cover with labeling standards? Wow. Great question. So with this label specification, it's exclusive to label content. So, you know, what actually Mm -hmm. goes on the label as well as the style format location and prominence of elements that would go on a label. So specific to those features, doesn't touch design or material specifications or adhesive specifications for the label, which I know are also a big deal when it comes to maybe take back programs and how do you reuse a package if it's super difficult to get the label off, right? Because of FDA requirements, right? It has to have uh, an adhesive that can be on there, I believe, for two years or something like that. Mm -hmm. So how can you both be FDA compliant in regards to adhesive specifications, as well as easily removable when you're trying to do (laughs) a take back program? So that's where design specifications, and this is really great because there are actually six different types of standards ASTM creates. Specifications is one of those. That's where a practice would come in on how to then remove said label using a process, right? That would then not allow just anyone, right, to remove a label and counterfeit goods, etc., right? You would have to do some type of thing to get that off in a way that lets you then sterilize and take back that packaging, right? Because we know packaging is a huge big deal, lots of waste. So if there's a way we could reduce that, then, you know, we can start helping uh, to make our industry more sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. I love when you really get into the details, I mean, with other industry, particularly with cannabis, like there's complications, (laughs) you know, like you mentioned, it's like, well, what do we do in this case? And how do we keep it compliant? And how do we make sure we're keeping people safe? We're not, you know, damaging the product. You know, it's, uh, it's it's fascinating when you get into all the details there and, and you start to understand why, like why we have such big specifications and these things can be dozens and hundreds of pages long sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I like to say, you know, there are, there are many ways or hundreds of ways, right. To skin a cat and um, each one could be standardized. Yeah. Yeah. We could have a process around it. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about what's going on with final bell. Why the move up to Canada? Why, why work with them? Tell me uh, a little bit about the insights of what you're doing today. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I've been, kind of a lone wolf for a while, a uh, free agent, so to speak, uh, helping clients all, um, all over the world. And I happened to uh, meet up with a gentleman there who's running Final Bell Canada, Greg Boone, on um, one of my projects. And he was a great CEO, loved his passion, loved how he built the team. And when there was an opportunity uh, to kind of join the team that he was building at the ground floor, I was like, yep, that sounds like a great opportunity, especially with a solid business plan, such as being, you know, like a co-packer, toll processing entity, supporting brands from really both sides in the Canada and U.S. to help really create and support uh, multinational cannabis brands uh, and really to take those that are local in Canada, national, and those in the U.S., right, and help them make a brand presence here up in, in Canada. So great, yeah. an awesome opportunity to explore a new regulatory marketplace yeah. and new challenges. Yeah. What are you noticing that different with the Canadian market? Because I know they're obviously, you know, the model is different that they're federally, federally legal so they can provide or they, they can work at things at the federal level. And then the provincials obviously have their kind of say and, mm. and layer to it. But what, give me a little compare and contrast from US to Canadian market so far. Oh, well, the elimination of boutique marketplaces isn't quite there. Uh, so <laughs> as you said, there is a federal marketplace established. It is legal, which is great. 
but uh, each province gets to define how they want to handle it. And I'm still re researching and becoming, you know, proficient in all the regulations. But, you know, one thing I know, right, is that there are different excise taxes for each province. And you as an operator have to kind of handle that in each way differently. And the provinces allow you to have some allow terms, some don't. And, you know, that really impacts how you operate your business and, you know, uh, what, you know, what cash on hand, right, so to speak, you need to have in order to actually be able to operate um, when you need to really meet some of the interesting logistics, because uh, some provinces require you to sell into um, a store uh, that yeah. they control whereas others allow you to sell into the retailer directly, right? So, you know, obviously that's much easier in some respects, but there are, of course, more challenges, or not necessarily more, but different challenges when selling direct to the retailer than just selling to, say, the Ontario Cannabis Store, which is like your liquor control board or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, that handles all of that stuff. Yeah. And what are you noticing in terms of the products that people are developing? I mean, as a co-packer, you know, you're, you're touching lots of different brands, different companies. What, 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 what are you producing for folks? Is this primarily um, edibles and um, things like that? Are people getting into the beverage category? What's what's your kind of experience on yeah, great some question. of the things people are I mean, well, producing. we support our partners throughout the, the, the process uh, or supply chain, really, whether through uh, product development, packaging development, uh, excise, manufacture. And uh, the current the facility where I'm at, we focus specifically on uh, vape cartridge production, as well as uh, solventless, which is super exciting. You know that part of the the SKU world. So we have an entire yeah. wing and refrigerated spaces dedicated to making you know high class world uh, world competition winning you know solventless extracts, which is great. You know, and the Canadian marketplace is an interesting one. Uh, it's kind of like it's uh, maturing, right? At, at interesting rates. I would say it, it takes steps, right? Or, or it has like a, a jumps, there we go, or leaps to catching up to the US. I'd say we're maybe a couple of years behind, and then we're going to jump right to where the, uh, you know, the US is, and then we're going to kind of wait again. And I think that's kind of uh, just how the Canadian marketplace works a little bit, right? Willing, yeah. to, willing to try things. And then, you know, uh, take a step back for a second, see how that is before, you know, allowing new products to hit the marketplace. But, you know, what's new and exciting right now are, are infused pre-rolls. As you know, flour is a big part of the marketplace in the U.S. Yeah. and still is king in Canada as well. Uh, and I think infused pre-rolls is going to be a really exciting skew on really both sides of the, uh, the marketplace. Or the 49th parallel, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Darwin, this has been a pleasure. Uh, if people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, uh, what's the best way to get that information? Sure. Well, I mean, you could follow me on LinkedIn. That's honestly my most active platforms. Uh, you just search for Darwin Millard on LinkedIn. Uh, you can also find me on my website, thespockofcannabis.com. I uh, highly recommend you checking out some of my articles and diving into the, the mind of the Spock of Cannabis. Um, you could also just email me at darwin at thespockacannabis.com or uh, dmillard at finalbell.com if you want to talk more specifically about what we can do in Canada for you. Yeah, uh, I'll make sure all the links and everything are on the show notes so people can get that information. Darwin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. No, thank you so much, Bruce. I really appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. 
To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.